You know, one of the concerns that keeps popping up in my mind as we move through this study on contentment is that people will get the wrong idea as if uh, contentment forbids all sorrow, as if contentment forbids all grief. Uh, the author um, clarified this in the beginning. We're just moving through the book so slowly, it, it, it's possible that we forget this clarification, right? Remember in the beginning, the author did say that having contentment does not mean that we lack a due sense of our affliction. That's his old English way of, of saying um, it's possible to have contentment and to still be aware of true affliction. Uh, this came to mind as well. Christians are permitted to grieve. We're permitted to grieve in the Lord. Jesus Himself wept over His friend's death, remember. So there is a kind of grief that is um, permitted to the Christian. Contentment and grief aren't contrary to one another. It's possible to grieve even deeply and yet to be content. The two things are not opposed. Uh, you know the scriptures talk about having a peace that surpasses all understanding. I think that's, this is what that is talking about. Having both grief, a, a due sense of affliction, and yet at the same time having this strange peace with, within you. This deep and substantial peace within you. At the same time, the two things can go together in the Lord. And you've probably experienced this in life to where you have been sorrowful, you have grieved over the loss of a loved one or over some true affliction, and yet at the same time you have this sense of peace within you and it surpasses understanding. It's not natural, it's not something that you can explain, but you have it nonetheless. Why do you have that peace that surpasses understanding within your soul? It's because you have hope in, in Christ. You have hope uh, that the Lord will preserve you. You have a treasure stored up, not here but in heaven, and so there is that peace within your soul. Uh, I, I want to just keep that always before us. When we talk about having contentment, we're not saying don't ever grieve or don't ever acknowledge true affliction. We're not saying that. We're saying pursue contentment even in the midst of grief and affliction. Uh, contentment does not equal complacency. Contentment does not equal being oblivious to the real and true afflictions of life. It's something that we're to pursue even in the, in the midst of it. So I, I just I felt as if I needed to continue to press this upon you. Um, also, another scripture that came to mind is that one where we are warned against grieving in the way that non-believers grieve. You remember that passage? There's a kind of grief that's appropriate for the Christian. There's a kind of grief that's in, completely inappropriate for the Christian. And I think this issue of contentment plays into that. Um, we're not to grieve as the non-believers grieve. They grieve as those who have no what? Hope. But for the Christian, when we grieve, we grieve truly, but we grieve as those who have hope. If we've lost someone who knows the Lord, then we have the hope that we will see them again. But also... Even if we've lost someone that does not know the Lord, we still have hope in God that He is able to accomplish all of His purposes. We are able to trust in Him in the midst of the true sorrow. So there's to be a, 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 um, there's to be a limit to our grief. 
There's to be a limit to our sorrow. There's to be a limit to our despair. And what is the limit to our despair except God Himself? The Sovereign Lord is the limit to all of our despair. It was just on my mind. I wanted to bring all of that into the conversation because I think this issue of contentment plays into it, doesn't it? Um, And so I've said enough about that by way of introduction. Let's get through now the evils of a murmuring spirit. A wonderful lesson. Introduction. Uh, Thus we have showed in many respects the excellence of this grace of contentment, laboring to present the beauty of it before your souls that you may be in love with it. Uh, That's what's been done so far. Look at how good contentment is. Look at how excellent it is. Now, my brethren, Burroughs says, what remains but the practice of this. For this art of contentment is not a speculative thing only for contemplation, but it is an art of divinity and therefore practical. So we cannot just sit here and talk about how good it is. We must now practice this. We must lay a hold of contentment. Now that we may come to grips with this practice, it is necessary that we should be humbled in our hearts because of our lack of contentment in the past. For there is no way to set about any duty that you should perform. You might labor to perform it, but first you must be humble for the lack of it. In other words, we must recognize how we have come short of this in the past, and we must acknowledge it as sin and and grieve over it. In fact, sanctification works this way. Not only must we see the beauty of Holiness. Not only must we see how good life lived in obedience to God is, we must also see how vile the evil thing is too. And I think those two realizations combined help us to progress in sanctification. We must see how good God's law is. We must also see how vile our sin is. And those two things combined help us to progress in in holy living. And so we're going to talk about the evils of discontentment, the evils of a murmuring or complaining spirit. He lists, Burroughs lists 13 great evils in a murmuring, discontented heart. We'll take it in two parts, parts one through five this morning. First of all, this murmuring and discontented discontentedness of your of yours reveals much corruption in the soul. Uh, I think the meaning is this. When we are discontented and, and murmuring, it is a sign that the soul is sick in significant ways. There's, there's a lot going on within the soul that is producing this murmuring and discontentedness. Quoting now Burroughs uh, in length. So it is just for all the world in the souls of men. It may be that there is some affliction upon them which I compare to the wound. Uh, Here I have a little remark. See the illustration of the wound above. I I didn't want to print out that illustration for you. didn't have the space, so I'll tell you about it now. Do you remember the illustration? Um, Burroughs, uh, it's kind of a a gruesome illustration, in fact, but he he uses medicine again, right? He talks about how doctors know the difference between wounds that are serious and wounds that are not so serious. And in fact, a wound might be very, very large and very bloody. He says, sorry if this makes you queasy, right? Um, A wound may be very large and and, and very gruesome, and yet a doctor might look upon it and say, it'll be healed within a few days, you know, because the cut is clean and there's no infection. Um, But a doctor might also look upon a wound that might be relatively small and not gruesome and say this is going to be a major problem because there is, in our words, an, an infection in it. You know, we, we, we have to 
get this infection out. And what Burroughs does with this illustration is he says it's not necessarily the wound that is the problem. It's not the laceration. It's not the cut that is the problem. The thing that causes a real problem for a man is the, is the infection that takes hold within the wound. A wound without an infection might be quickly healed. A wound with an infection in it is a real problem. It can become deadly. And that is the illustration that Burroughs uses for the issue of discontentment. In essence, what he will say, and I'll read him in just a moment, is this. It's not the affliction that's the problem. It's the discontentment. It's the discontentment that's the problem in the soul. That is the real poison. That is the real infection. That is the real deadly thing to, to be afflicted and to have a discontent heart. So I continue now quoting Burroughs. Now they think that the greatness of the affliction is what makes their condition most miserable. Oh, now there is a fretting humor, an inflammation in the heart, a murmuring spirit that is within you, and that is the misery of your condition, and it must be purged out of you before you can be healed. We can say that the real trouble is that there is an infection in your heart, an infection, and that is what must be purged out. Let God do with you what He will till He purges out that fretting humor. Your wound will not be healed. There is an affliction upon you, and that is grievous. So, see, Burroughs acknowledges that. There is an affliction upon you, and that is grievous, but there is a murmuring heart within, and that is more grievous. Oh, that we would but convince men and women that murmuring, that murmuring spirit is a greater evil than any affliction, whatever the affliction. We shall show more fully afterward that a murmuring spirit is the evil of the evil and the misery of the misery. That's beautifully stated. As, as your pastor, I will say to you, I have seen this very thing, and I have seen this very thing grow deadly, spiritually speaking. We have to keep our hearts pure, brothers and sisters. We cannot allow ourselves to be given over to a discontented heart. That discontented heart grows bitter over time. It grows unbelieving over time. It grows hard over time. It is very deadly, spiritually speaking. So we must beware of this spiritual infection, which uh, leads to spiritual death. Two, the evil of murmuring is such that when God would speak of wicked men and describe them and show the brand of a wicked and ungodly man or woman, He instances this sin in a more special manner. In other words, the Lord lists this sin of murmuring and discontent right in the midst of other sins that we might consider to be very, very vile. you know. In fact, the Lord considers this sin to be very vile, uh, very evil. Um, some might even look at the title of this chapter and say, man, that's strong language, the evils of a murmuring spirit. I, I think what men typically think of when they think of murmuring is, okay, it's kind of a small sin. you know, it, it's, it, it's a bit of a problem. But the Lord portrays murmuring as... As a very big problem, as a great evil. He goes on here, Burroughs does, and says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful de desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is Jude 14 through 16. 
Uh, you can see what Burroughs is drawing our attention to here now. Uh, this passage speaks of ungodly people. Uh, the word ungodly is repeated in this passage, is it three times? Ungodly, ungodliness, ungodly. Uh, and then how are these ungodly people described? These are grumblers. These are malcontents following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, etc. You know, so you hear about these ungodly men, these ungodly men, and you're expecting a list of truly vile and perverse sins to follow. But what does Jude say? These are, these are malcontents. These are grumblers. It should not be difficult to, for us to really see why um, discontentment and, and grumbling is such a vile sin. When you analyze it, you see that it is the product of a heart that is really rebellious against God. A heart that is complaining against God Himself. And so we must, um, I think, wake up to the severity of, of this sin. We, we cannot play with it. We cannot rationalize and say, well, at least I'm not like those. At least I'm not like those who, who do those vile things. I only complain, you know, continuously. God has a different perspective on it. Um, this is a very dangerous sin, brothers and sisters. God accounts murmuring as rebellion, and I think that really does get to the heart of it. A murmuring heart is a rebellious heart, Burroughs says. A murmuring heart is a rebellious heart. He says here to compare Numbers 16.41 and 17.10, But on the next day all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord, etc., uh, you know the scene here. This is Israel in the wilderness. We saw this in our study of the book of Exodus too. Remember they, Israel was led out into the wilderness, uh, freed from Egyptian bondage. They just watched the Lord deliver them in such miraculous ways. But what did they do in the wilderness over and over and over again? I think three times over in the Exodus narrative. They grumbled and complained. They grumbled and complained. They grumbled and complained. It's as if the Lord wants to get our attention. That if we are to be His sojourners, if we are to be His people, we ought to sojourn um, trusting in Him and, and, and not grumbling and complaining continuously. We drop down a little bit further in Numbers 17.10. And the Lord said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels, that you may make an end of their grumblings against me, lest they die." And what is Burroughs drawing out of this text except to show us that at the very heart or core of all of Israel's grumbling was rebellion. There was rebellion in the heart that produced it. So do you see that to be a murmurer is to be a rebel, Burroughs says. In Scripture, the phrase is all one. Let me read that again. So you see that to be a murmurer and to be a rebel in Scripture phrase is all one. It is rebellion against God. When discontent comes, it grows to murmuring. Within a little while, it breaks forth into sedition or rebellion. Uh, that discontentment in the heart is the seed from which outright rebellion against the Lord grows. And again, I say to you as your pastor, I have seen this. You probably have witnessed this too, where someone who professes faith in Christ allows themselves to to be discontent. Uh, they allow themselves to, to grumble and complain against the Lord. They allow themselves to grieve in an ungodly man manner. And in the process of time, that little seed of discontentment grows into 
disbelief and rebellion against God and the things of God. It's, it's very sad to watch, but we need to be sober about these things, brothers and sisters. Four, it is a wickedness which is contrary to grace, and especially contrary to the work of God in bringing the soul home to Himself. So to be discontent, to be a murmurer, is contrary to the work of grace. When God is working within us graciously to bring us to salvation, He's doing something else in us. And these two things really cannot go together. Uh, they're, They're contrary to one another. They're opposed to one another. He asks a question now, Burroughs does, what is the work of God when He brings a sinner home to Himself? So what is that work like? What what does he do in a man or a woman to bring that person to himself uh, through faith in Jesus Christ? He gives six answers. This is a very beautiful section. We'll look at each of these answers. The usual way is for God to make the soul to see and sensible of the dreadful evil that is in sin and the great breach that sin has made between God and it, for certainly Jesus Christ can never be known in His beauty and excellence till the soul knows that. So this is how God brings a sinner to Himself through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what He does. The first thing He does is He shows the sinner their sin, and how sinful their sin is, and how it has created a breach between that person and God. There's enmity between God and, and the sinner. Uh, That sinner is under God's uh, curse and and, and deserving of God's judgment because of sin. Uh, This is what God does. He makes us aware of it. Um, That is why we must preach the law and the gospel too. The law and the gospel go together. What does the law do? It makes us aware of our sin and the gospel shows the remedy or the solution. Uh, So we must uh, be aware of our sin. This is the way that the Lord brings us to faith in Christ, by making us aware of our sin. Two, yea, it is strongly contrary to the sight of the infinite excellence and glory of Jesus Christ and the things of the gospel. He's speaking of discontentment. What? Am I the soul to whom the Lord has revealed the infinite excellence of Jesus Christ, and yet shall I think such a little affliction to be so grievous to me? When I have had the sight of such glory in Christ, as is worth more than ten thousand worlds, a true convert will say, Oh, the Lord at such a time gave me a sight of Christ that I would not be without for ten thousand thousand worlds. But God, but has God given you that, and you will be discontented for a trifle in comparison to that trifle, 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 in comparison to that? What is this point here? Um, those in Christ realize how rich they are in Him, or at least they should. They should grow in their understanding of that continuously, how magnificent the grace of God is that has been bestowed upon them. They have a a rich and sure inheritance. They have had their sins washed away. They are invited to come before God Himself. So if we truly believe that, if if we understand that and truly believe it, then the afflictions of this life will seem but to be a trifle. Uh, They will seem to be very small in comparison. Answer three, a third work when God brings the soul home to Himself is by taking the heart off from the creature, disengaging the heart from all creature comforts. That is the third work ordinarily that the soul may perceive 
of itself. So, so when God brings a sinner to repentance, to trust in Christ, and to live for God's glory now, one of the things that the Lord does is He disengages our hearts from the things of this world so that our hearts are not attached, so attached to the things of this world. Our love is fixed on God. Our hope is in the world to come, etc., etc. We begin to store up for ourselves not treasures on earth anymore, but treasures in heaven. This is how a Christian is to live. I can't remember if it's in this section or in another one. I don't think I printed it out here in our brief outline. Um, But Burroughs uses another illustration that I thought was very helpful. He talks about when something is really adhered to something else, uh, stuck to something else. If it's really stuck to something else, if you go to remove that thing, it's going to tear, right? It's going to, if if we can use the illustration of a Band-Aid, I suppose, if it's really stuck, when you go to remove it, it's going to hurt, isn't it? Uh, But if something is placed upon something else and it's not adhered to it, if it's not stuck to it, when you go to remove that thing, there's no pain at all. There's no tearing that takes place. And he uses that to illustrate the Christian's Christian's, um, attachment to the world. If your heart is strongly attached to the things of this world, and then you experience affliction in that area, it's going to tear. It's going to hurt the grief is going to be very, very, very deep. But if our hearts are not so attached to the things of this world, and there is affliction in that area, if that thing is removed or disrupted, then it will not shake us to the core. There may be true grief for the loss of something pleasant, but it will not ruin us. It will not tear us so deeply because our hearts are affixed not to the things of the, this world, not to the creatures, but to what? To whom? To God and, and to Christ. So, so we must be sure that our hearts are truly attached to Him, that, that our treasure is in heaven, etc. It, it was brought up in the discussion at the end of the last lesson, and I'm so glad that it was brought up. Um, it really came to a head, right? Uh, when we were talking about how it is right for us to enjoy the things of this world, but we have to enjoy them in the right way. And that even includes people. That, e- that even includes human relationships, you know. Um, I think it's right, very right, that a husband truly loves his wife and that a wife truly loves her husband. That, that love should be very, very strong. The, 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 you know, there, there should be much comfort drawn from that relationship, much pleasure. We're not talking about di- diminishing any of that, but it must be the right kind of love. Right? It, it must be the kind of love that one creature has for another. Uh, it, a husband and wife, they cannot, they, they cannot treat each other as if they are God. They cannot depend upon one another in the way that we depend upon God. They cannot build their life upon the foundation of the other. That's idolatry. You see? Uh, we're not talking about diminishing a, an appropriate kind of love for the things of this world. You don't have to diminish it at all. You just have to love the things of the world in the right way. Um, And we have to love God in the right way. 
with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. He must be the foundation upon which we build our life. He must be our hope. He must be our confidence, our surety. All of our faith must be rooted in Him. Do you understand this? It's not about loving the things of this world less. It's about loving the things of this world in the right way and to the glory of God. It's about not making idols of the things of this world. The problem is, to use the terminology of idolatry, when we make idols of creatures, when we are afflicted as it pertains to those creatures, it, it rips us to the core. Why? Because our God has been disrupted. Our God has been taken from us. It shakes us to the core then. The problem really is idolatry, if I could use that terminology. So, again, the third work when God brings the soul home to Himself is by taking the heart off from the creature, disengaging the heart from all creature comforts. That is the third work ordinarily that the soul may perceive in itself. Um, I've restated that in a different way, but I I think you get the, the meaning or the gist of it. Four, a fourth work of God in converting a sinner is this, the casting of the soul upon Jesus Christ for all its good. I see Jesus Christ, let's see here. It says that in the book, that's how it's stated. I see Jesus Christian, the gospel, as the fountain of all good. Huh. Okay. I see Jesus Christ in the gospel as the fountain of all good. That makes more sense. And I could see how that typo would would come in here. (laughs) I see Jesus Christ in the gospel as the fountain of all good. And God, out of free grace, tendering Him to me for life and for salvation. And now my soul casts itself, rolls itself upon the infinite grace of God in Christ for all good. Um, This is marvelous. Uh, So, the third point and the fourth are related to one another. Uh, The Lord takes the heart of of, of the, the Christian off from the creature and the Lord takes the heart of the Christian off from the creature and places it on to whom? On to Christ. And it's in Him that we find all of our comfort, all of our good. Answer 5, the soul is subdued to God. And then it comes to receive Jesus Christ as a king to rule, to order, and dispose of Him how He pleases. And so the heart is subdued unto God. Now how opposite is a murmuring, discontented heart to a heart subdued to Jesus Christ as King and receiving Him as Lord to rule and dispose of Him as He pleases. Um, When we come to to faith in Christ, when we come to salvation, we confess that Jesus is what? Lord. Jesus is Lord. So to be a true Christian is to bow the knee before God and before Christ. He He is now our Lord and our King. Uh, we, we look to Him as King. He now rules, orders, and disposes all things as He pleases. We, we take that posture of submission before Him, in other words. And again, we know that taking that posture of submission is crucial uh, when it comes to enduring the afflictions of life that come upon us in this world. We submit ourselves to God and, and to His will for us. Answer 6, there is in the work of your trusting to God try that again. There is in the work of your turning to God, the giving up of yourself to God in an everlasting covenant. As you take Christ, the head of the covenant, to be yours, so you give up yourself to Christ. In the work of conversion, there is 
the resignation of the soul wholly to God in an everlasting covenant to be His. Uh, we are in a covenantal relationship with God uh, through Jesus Christ, the mediator. It is the covenant of grace. Uh, we, are his, we are His bride, in other words. Uh, we are married to the Lord, as it were. And uh, we take our comfort in this covenant, in the precious and very great promises contained within it. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will bring us safely home. He will be with us always, even to the end of the age. And so we are to take comfort in this everlasting covenant. So those are six answers to the question, well, what does God do uh, to bring a sinner home to himself? And Burroughs' point is that a murmuring and discontent spirit is contrary to all that. God is taking us in this direction, but if we are discontent and murmuring, we're heading off in the wrong direction. We're, 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 we're running in the wrong way. Point five. Murmuring and discontent is exceedingly below a Christian. Um, if I were to state it differently, I might say to you, uh, brothers and sisters, you're better than this. You know, you're better than this in Christ, not in and of ourselves, but you're better than this in Christ. Think of who you are in Christ Jesus. This is below you. Uh, when you murmur and you complain, you're, you're, you're kind of stooping down you know, and engaged in things that are, that are very much below you. You are a Christian. You are a child of God. Uh, murmuring and discontentment is exceedingly below a Christian, below the relation of a Christian is the first thing that Burroughs draws our attention to. It's below the relation of a Christian. And by this, he wants us to remember the relationship that we now have with God, the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. We are His bride, uh, the Scriptures say. The church is the bride of Christ. I think it is here in this section um, that Burroughs says, No husband wants to see his wife um, wandering around discontented. You know, with a frown on her face, as if she's lacking. No husband wants to see his wife do that. It, 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 it will grieve the heart of the husband. Every husband wants his wife to, to walk around as if she is very happy and, and fully satisfied in life, uh, fully supplied with all that she needs emotionally and physically and, and otherwise. And I think Burroughs is, is right to say to us, the same is true of Jesus Christ. He doesn't want to watch his bride sojourn on earth with a frown on her face, uh, complaining all of the time about the lack of provisions that she has, etc. Uh, we are the bride of Christ, and so to, to murmur and complain is below the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ as His bride. We are to remember that we stand in relation to Christ not only as a spouse, but as a member. So here, Burroughs is drawing on that other analogy we find in scriptures, we are the body of Christ, so, so we are a member of Him. Uh, he is also called our elder brother likewise, and so we are to remember that we are a co-heir with Christ. Everything that Christ has earned is ours too. We cannot forget that. We are a co-heir with Christ. We are to remember also the relationship in which we stand to the Spirit of God. He has been poured out upon us and in us. He is called our comforter. And so you can see the Trinity here in this section as well. Do not remember, do, do not forget your relationship to God the Father. Do not forget your relationship to God the Son incarnate. Do not forget your relationship to God the Spirit. And here the Spirit is called 
our comforter. The relation in which you stand to the angels also is to be remembered. You are one body with them, and they are ministering spirits. So we must remember our relationship even to the angels in heaven. An interesting thought, I think, here. Lastly, he mentions the relationship in which we stand to the saints. We are the same body with them. I think Burroughs' point here is to say, listen, if you are walking around with a murmuring, complaining uh, uh, disposition to you, um, you're having an effect upon others in the body of Christ also. We have to spur one another along, don't we, in in Christ to to, to, uh, live for the glory of God and and to to rejoice in the things of the Lord. And so your your behavior and, and, and your attitude has an impact upon the whole body of Christ. You see how this can happen within a church too. A murmuring and complaining spirit can be very contagious, can't it? It can be very contagious in the home. It can be contagious within the body of Christ. And so we must be aware of the effect that we have upon those around us. Um, And we must be sure that even our attitudes are um, appropriate in the Lord. Murmuring and discontentment is exceedingly below a Christian as it pertains to the Christian's relationships. B, murmuring and discontentment is below the high dignity which God has put upon the Christian. Uh, He says later, the lowest Christian in the world is Lord of heaven and earth. Think about that. The lowest Christian in the world is Lord of heaven and earth. What does he mean there? I think he's here referring to our inheritance in Christ. He's referring to the fact that we will be involved even in the judgment at the end of time, that we will have dominion in the new heavens and new earth. Um, This is something that we probably need to talk more about, how highly we have been elevated in Christ Jesus, not because of something good within us, but because of what Christ has done for us. We have been highly elevated in Him, and we cannot forget it. So to murmur and to complain, it's it's below the dignity that God has put upon the Christian. If a king, if, if, if if a great and powerful king, you know, who has everything in the world, who has his kingdom in order, walks around grumbling and complaining, You'd look upon that and you'd think, that's strange. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> this, this king has everything. And yet he's walking around grumbling and complaining. Something doesn't fit here. And so it is with the Christian who murmurs. Murmuring is below the spirit of a Christian is what Burroughs says next. Quoting Burroughs at length, The spirit of every Christian should be like the spirit of his father. The spirit of a Christian should be a lion-like spirit. As Jesus Christ is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, so He is called, so we should manifest something of the Lion-like spirit of Jesus Christ. He manifested His Lion-like spirit in passing through all afflictions and troubles whatsoever without any murmuring against God. When He came to drink that bitter cup and even the dregs of it, He prayed indeed to God that if it were possible, it might pass from Him. But immediately, not my will, but Thy will be done. Christ said, would have this lion-like spirit. You know, when we talk, when we use that language, I think we, 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 might, we might be tempted to think of someone who is just very strong, 
very successful, you know, who is flourishing in this world, right? Be, be, a, be a lion heart, right? So you picture someone who's just, maybe they have that physique about them, they, they have that air about them, they're very successful, they conquer in this world. It's not what Burroughs is talking about here, is, is he? He's talking about manifesting this lion-like spirit even in the midst of suffering. So consider Christ, um, how he had this lion-like spirit about him uh, even as he went to the cross, even as he was brutally treated by men and, and crucified for us. Um, he was strong, not outwardly. That's my point. In fact, outwardly, he was very pitiful, according to the world. He was a defeated person, according to the world's eyes. But his, but his devotion to God, his, his focus on the mission at hand, his attitude, his spirit, was lion-like. Um, he did count the affliction as affliction, saying, If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He did not ignore the affliction in his humanity. But he immediately added these words, not my will, but thy will be done. Uh, that is the thing that we must do, brothers and sisters. We must submit ourselves to the will of the Father for us. D, it is below the profession of a Christian, murmuring and discontentment is. It is below the profession of a Christian. We claim to be in Christ and to be rich in Him, etc. So it is a contradiction to then go on grumbling and complaining. It is below that special grace of faith. Uh, this grace of faith, this gift of faith that has been given to us, helps us to see what we are in Christ and how rich we are in Christ. Well, there's a contradiction if we claim to have this faith, if we claim to believe this and that about all of the treasures that are in Christ Jesus. If we go on grumbling and complaining, there's a contradiction there. It is a below a Christian because it is below those helps that a Christian has more than others have. Here Burroughs is speaking of the precious and very great promises that belong to us in Christ. The world does not have those precious and very great promises. The world does not have the hope that we have. The, the world does not have the faith that we have. And so we should make use of those helps as we sojourn and as we experience the afflictions of this life. G, it is below the expectation Expectation that God has of Christians, for God expects not only that they should be patient in, in afflictions, but that they should rejoice and triumph in them. Um, in other words, God does not only call us to endure afflictions, but you know that the Scriptures even call us to rejoice and triumph in them. This has already been covered in previous lessons the James passage certainly comes to mind. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, knowing that they produce all of these things. We don't rejoice in the trial itself or in the affliction itself, but in the fact that God is able to work good through them, etc. You've learned this before. Um, I think I've said this before as well. And I've been guilty of saying this. I often qualify it. Someone's going through a difficult time. Sometimes we'll say to them, Hang in there, brother. Hang in there, sister. <laughs> uh, in other words, endure or be patient. Um, be long-suffering. In, endure. Hang in there. And I'm not saying it's bad advice. It's just kind of incomplete advice. Uh, we're not just to hang in there in the midst of afflictions as Christians, are we? We are to even rejoice in them and thrive in them. 
Uh, sometimes that's difficult and even inappropriate counsel to give at certain times. You know, in the heat of the moment when the affliction has descended upon somebody, we probably don't quote James and say, count it all joy, my brother. Uh, yeah, that, that could be uh, not very tactful, and so I'm not encouraging that. Um, but I am saying that this is true, what Burroughs says. Um, God expects us to not only hang in there in the midst of afflictions, but even to flourish in them in Christ Jesus. We have to fight for that. It is a battle, but we are to flourish even in the midst of difficulties. Lastly, it is below what God has had from other Christians. Uh, Here Burroughs um, draws our attention to the way in which Christians have suffered uh, throughout the ages. We might even speak of the days before Christ, speaking anachronistically, Uh, that those who had faith uh, before the arrival of Christ lived in this way too. They they overcame, they they flourished even in the midst of afflictions. They persevered in the faith despite hardships. Perhaps it is here in this section that Burroughs draws our attention to that famous Hebrews passage where we call it the Hall of Faith, you know, uh, where the writer of the Hebrews uh, draws our attention to the way in which men persevered in the midst of affliction uh, in, in ages past. It's a very challenging lesson. Uh, do you have any comments or questions with the few minutes that we have remaining? Um, this is kind of law stuff being put upon you right now, isn't it? Um, look at how evil murmuring is. The law is important. I, I hope it doesn't discourage you. Um, I hope that as you hear the law, as we consider how evil murmuring is, you remember also the gospel of Jesus Christ that the Lord has paid for all of our sins and that in Him we have the strength to live as He has called us to live. We must remember that as well. So does this mean that I should never complain or murmur about the political situation we have? Does this mean I should never complain or murmur about uh, the political situation that we're in? Uh, short answer, yes, it means that we should never complain or murmur about it. It doesn't mean that we should never talk about it. There's a difference. You know, it, 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 it's perfectly um, possible to talk about our afflictions, whatever they are. Um, so let's leave the po- politics aside. There is nothing at all wrong with uh, a sister in Christ meeting with a sister in Christ and talking about the hard times that she's going through and receiving comfort and consolation and advice. Uh, Again, it's right for us to see an affliction as an affliction. It's even right for us to talk to God in prayer about the affliction and to ask the Lord to remove it. It's right to talk to others about the affliction so that they might support you with encouragement and with prayer. We're not saying don't see affliction as affliction. We're not saying don't talk about affliction What we're saying is make sure that we don't um, degrade into murmuring and complaining. That's a different thing. And I think the same would be true of our political situation. We must talk about our political situation. We must call evil evil. We must say here's where change is needed. We must confront injustice. Uh, We must even speak boldly against it when we're given opportunity to do so, when we're called to do so. Uh, that, That is not murmuring. That is speaking truth, bringing light into darkness. 
but it's so easy for that to uh, devolve into griping and complaining against, against the Lord and against others. Um, there, there's a different attitude in it. Were Job's comments murmuring and complaining? Uh, you know, I'd have to think more about that, and we'd probably have to go to specific passages. It, seemed, it seems to me, from my recollection of the, the story, he did pretty well in that regard for at least a long time. You know, um, But he did receive a rebuke from the Lord eventually, so that he, he must have answered back to God in a way that was inappropriate at some point to receive that rebuke from the Lord uh, so, again, I think in Job, what we see is the battle, the, the real human struggle as it pertains to the afflictions of life. I don't know if we're to, I, I, in fact, we're not to set Job up as the, 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 the model for us, the paradigm. I think in Job, we are able to see something of the real and true human struggle that takes place when afflictions come upon us. And I've reminded you of this continuously in the study. This is, this is a battle. It's not as if we're saying this is easy, but it is a battle we must fight. And the book of Job does help us to fight that battle. To submit ourselves to the Lord, ultimately. That's what we're called to do. Um, to acknowledge that He is God and He can do as He pleases. And we are to be His humble servants. Yeah. Maybe one more? Anything? Oh, Scott. So would you say that Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose uh, murmuring and complaining is is kind of like a dead end street. It's like a cul-de-sac that goes nowhere, right? So it's just we're sitting here griping and complaining, and you know the attitude of it. It's hard to define, but you know you know it when you see it, right? Um, there, there's a certain attitude in it, and you know it when you see it in your own children. Like there's a difference between your child coming to you and saying, um, "Hey." Do you think, you know, we're lacking this thing. Do you think we can get this thing or whatever? There's a difference between that honest request and them moping around the house all day, shuffling around and, and acting like a spoiled brat because we lack something. You know, you know the difference between the two, and it's the same thing with God. But I, yeah, I think you're right. When it comes to politics, we can talk about it, but we have to be careful that we talk about it in a way that's productive. We, we name the evil. We go to the Lord in prayer. We remind ourselves in these conversations about the sovereignty of God over all things and His will for us in this world. And then we need to move on to productive 
um, pursuits, be it political action, um, certainly prayer. We must go to our knees in prayer and ask the Lord to have mercy upon uh, the situation. Yeah, Jesse. Yeah. Say that again. Yeah, with politics, uh, the providence of God, we on the one hand must acknowledge that things are as God has determined they should be. Um, on the other hand, we have to be responsible, uh, responsible in the church and responsible citizens. So the two things always fit together and how they work together is always mysterious to us in every respect. I think the same thing is true of politics. Um, we, we find comfort in the fact that God is on the throne um, that nothing takes him by surprise, that he is working out all of his purposes, that comforts us. Um, at the same time, we have been called to seek the good of the city in which we live and, and to be active even in the political realm. Uh, so both those, tension, both, both those things have to be maintained, and we have to live with that tension, I think, continuously. So we're out of time. A very good study, I think. Um, let's close in a word of prayer. Uh, God, do help us to lay a hold of this gift of contentment. Uh, help us to see... Um, how displeasing our murmuring is to you, O God. Help us to see the difference between bringing an honest concern, an honest heartache, an honest struggle to you and to others, and murmuring and complaining. Help us to see the difference between these two things. Keep our hearts pure, O Lord. Keep our hearts soft to you and to the things of you. May we honor you as we trust in you in this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.